Let's pray. God, we are so humbled to be able to enter into your presence in this way. We, I don't think we even appreciate, God, what it means to know you and to be known by you and to, to love you and be loved by you. And so we want to say, before we do anything else, before you, we ask you for anything else, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your love for us that our, our finite, small, limited human minds can't even fully grasp. But every once in a while, we get a taste of it, and we're like, I want more of that. I pray, God, that you would give us a, a, a taste of yourself now as we turn to your word. We thank you for this church. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your provision and your guidance and... Um, we thank you for the adventure that you are taking us on. I pray now, God, that you would speak through me. I pray that um, as we turn to your word, uh, simply the beauty and the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be seen and proclaimed. I pray that you would open our, our eyes to see you, our ears to hear you, and our hearts to receive you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are the living word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And once again, let me say good afternoon. Good to be with you. Um, was gone for a few weeks. I want to say thank you for all of the kind uh, welcomes back. And I also want to say again, a huge thank you to elders Keith and Jason for bringing the word. Uh, they both um, blessed me with their messages, and uh, it's just wonderful to have the gifts that God has given us in the body being exercised in that way. So I just want to say thank you to them. Uh, it's a lot of work to prepare and preach a message. And it's one thing when it's your job, it's another thing when you have another job, and then you have to do that as well. And so just want to say a huge thank you to them. Um, we are three weeks left here at Bridges. And as you know, before I left a few weeks ago, we finished the long-term series that we had been doing in the Gospel of Mark. And so as we have three weeks left before we go to our new home, uh, I just want to do a quick three-week series. Uh, and this is what I want to do it on. So while, uh, while I, the, a couple weeks ago, we had some dear friends come and stay with us, friends of ours from seminary who are Australian. And after school, they went back to Sydney, which is where they're from, and they planted a church, and they lead a church there, and they're doing a tour of the U.S. this summer, and we were their first stop. So they spent three or four days with us a couple of weeks ago. Um, they have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, so pray for them as they travel all over the U.S. Uh, but it was, it was a wonderful time and so life-giving. And uh, maybe my favorite part of that trip was, or that visit, I should say, was he and I, my friend and I, left our wife and kids, wives and kids. That was not my favorite part, leaving our wives and kids. But we, we took a trip. Uh, we went to Spokane, Washington for about 24 hours. And first of all, shout out to Spokane. Never been. Uh, we, got some, we got some zags here. Uh, awesome city. L loved it. Really awesome city. But uh, one of our favorite professors uh, who was also um, kind of a mentor to both of us in seminary, just retired to Spokane. And so with my friend here in the States, he's been gone for three years, uh, and this professor now on the West Coast, we were like, let's go see him. So we flew up there for 24 hours. Because it was a short trip, and because we live in San Jose, and we flew out of SFO, 
instead of having my wife drop us off and then pick us up, which with, you know, with traffic, that's a little bit of a hike, we just drove ourselves and ate the $25 a day to park in the long-term parking garage. It was a bitter, it was a bitter taste. But because we parked in the long-term parking garage, we got to do one of my favorite things when traveling, and that is we got to take the SFO air train. It's the last stop on the SFO air train. So we parked the car, we got on the air train, and I just want to tell you, and I hope you don't think less of me when I say this, I just try and keep, on, keep it real with you all. The main reason I like to watch the SFO, or I like to ride on the SFO air train or other air trains like that at airports uh, is because there's just something special about watching people with three backpacks and four, four suitcases trying to stay upright on a train that is moving fairly quickly and has no seats or seatbelts, right? And so true to form, to get to our terminal, we had to stop at a bunch of other stops, and one of them was the International Terminal. And you all know what it's like when you're at the airport, and you can see someone, and you're like, that person just came off of a 16-hour flight. It just, they wear it, like, it's just obvious, right? And so we stop at the International Terminal, and this poor soul stumbles on to the air train, huge, you know, hiking backpack on the back, another backpack worn on the front, you know, going the wrong direction, fanny pack, two huge suitcases, rollers, duffel bag on top. I have not spent a lot of time with people who are drunk, but my understanding is that sleep, deprived, sleep deprivation and inebriation, there's not that big of a separation. And so it was just clear this person, they just got off a long trip. And uh, they get on and I'm watching the doors close and I'm like, you gotta grab, you gotta grab onto something. You, this, this is not gonna end well. And, sh and true to form, that, that train jerks to a start and that person is so top-heavy and un, you know, imbalanced, they, they, they start stumbling, hit three people on the way, and right before a face plant, they grab the pole, right, and solidify themselves. Saved, saved from total disaster. It was amazing. Do you know what I always do when I ride the air train? I think, I think you may disagree, I think I'm fairly young and nimble, and, uh, and can keep myself upright. Even though I feel that way, I do not have enough confidence in myself to try and do it without holding on to something. So whenever I get on those stupid trains, I always hold on to the pole. I only had a backpack. We were going for 24 hours. I was like, un I didn't have any weight on me at all. I still held on to the pole because those trains, they are herky and they are jerky and they sway and they start and they stop. And no matter how confident you think you are, there's always a chance that you're gonna be caught off guard and you're gonna stumble and gravity is gonna take over and you're gonna hit the ground. So I always grab the pole. And the thing about those air trains is they are a lot like life. Life is oftentimes herky and jerky. It is swaying back and forth. It is stopping and starting and you think you got it under control, but actually all of a sudden you start real fast and next thing you know, you're flat on your face and you didn't expect it. And so, that is not only true in life, uh, it has also been kind of true for our church. Over the last three months, six months, 12 months, three years, like it's been a wild ride. And in these last few weeks, as we finish up our season here at summer camp at Bridges Community Church, I want to do a, sh a short series leaning into some of the aspects of God that do not change regardless of what is going on in our lives. So I wanted to call this series Poles on the Air Train, but I thought better of it, and we're just going to call it Guaranteed, because for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about three aspects of God's character that you can just take to the bank. 
that are just, regardless of the season of life, regardless of how unsettled things feel, regardless of what circumstances are, these are the solid poles you can grab onto that will keep you from falling flat on your face. And what this really is going to be is a series on the attributes of God. But here's the deal. We could do like a 20-week series on the attributes of God. And again, for those of you who are here for Mark, you know I'm here for that, and I would be all about that. We don't have 20 weeks before we go to the Jewish Community Center, so we're just gonna do three. And I just want you to hear me say, these are not my three favorite, these are not the three best, these are not the three most important, these are just the three that I felt God leading me to as I'm like, what can we lean into in this season? As we are headed towards what I hope and pray is a season of settledness for our church that we haven't felt in a little while. So. This series is called Guaranteed, and today we are going to talk about the providence of God. We're going to talk about the providence of God in the first message in this series called Guaranteed, and we're going to root that in the book of Genesis. It's really just one verse that I want to focus on, but I'm going to give us a little more context, so I'm going to read uh, about six or seven verses. This is the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, and we're going to do verses 15 through 21. Genesis 50, 50, excuse me verses 15 through 21. And it has been a long time since I have not been in anything, if since I've been in anything but the, but the gospel of Mark. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Earlier this summer, I was given a book. Uh, We do a fair amount of Amazon ordering at my house, and so it's probably like a lot of you, the Amazon packages show up, but there is something special. This is not a loaded statement. I'm not asking for anything. There's something special when an Amazon package shows up that you didn't order. Someone gave me a book, uh, some, uh, a couple gave me a book, uh, and I loved it. The book was called Deep Survival. It's by a guy named Lawrence Gonzalez, and it is an interweaving of true stories and fictional stories about the, uh, the art and science of survival. It's a lot of stories about people going out in the woods and getting lost on boats. Uh, it was fascinating, and I devoured it. Towards the end of that book, the author... Did I say his name? Lawrence Gonzalez. Uh, he tells a story about his own life. In the late 1970s, he was working at a magazine uh, whose offices were in Chicago. And he and his coworkers, so there were four coworkers, his managing editor and the managing editor's wife, uh, a foreign editor, and I think a fiction editor, and then he was, called, he was called a contributing editor. They were all going to fly to Los Angeles to attend a booksellers convention in LA. It was May 25th, 1979. They were all in the office together in Chicago. They were getting ready literally to get in a cab and head to O'Hare for their flight to this conference at LA. And right before they left, Lawrence Gonzalez, the author of this book, Deep Survival, found out that the plane that they were going to take was a McDonnell Douglas DC-10. 
and he had just been doing some research for an article he was gonna write about the many in-flight failures that the DC-10 had been experiencing lately. And it kind of spooked him, and at the very last minute, he decided to bail. He had a ticket, he was booked, he was supposed to go to this conference, and he was like, actually, I'm gonna stay. So his coworkers are like, are you sure you're not coming? And he said, yep, I'm, I'm gonna pass on this one. They went to the airport, and they got, Ameri got on American Airlines Flight 191 from, uh, from O'Hare to Los Angeles. Uh, 31 seconds after that plane took off, it crashed into a field outside of Chicago, killed all 273 people on board. To this day, it is the worst accidental aviation disaster in American history. And he was like this close to being on that flight. What, would the, what, what does our world call that? What does our world say about a situation like that? What are the words that our world uses to describe something like that? Luck, fate, chance, fortune, premonition. And the question that I just want to put before us that we're going to sit in for the next however many minutes uh, I go on for, I've been gone for a while, so I got a lot of words tonight, sorry, uh, is, is this. Is that what it is? Is it just chance? Is it just fate? Is it just luck? Is, it, are, are, is that situation, and so many millions of others like it, that happen in our lives and the lives of people around us, is that just, is that just chalked up to, to luck, fortune, chance, or fate? Now, here's, here's, the, here's the tension point for us. I can see people shaking their heads because you're good church people, and you know theology, and you know God, and you know that I'm about to tell you that that's not, we don't believe in fate, luck, or chance. I'm going to tell you that we believe in a God who has providence, who's in control. But here's the rub, like here's the tension, is we can know that in our heads, but how often do we actually feel like that when we're going through some garbage in this life? Because we all go through a lot of garbage, right? We all go through a lot of stuff. There's people in here tonight who are sitting in the middle of some, some garbage right now. And it's easy when we're sitting in church and things are good to be like, oh, God is providential and he's in control. And it's another thing when we're fighting cancer or when our marriage is falling apart or when some, we're headed to a funeral of somebody we love to be like, like, is this really a good God working towards his good ends in my life? And the answer is yes. And that is because we believe in the providence of God. Here, I just want to frame it this way. We believe that there is a uh, all-powerful, all-knowing God who is the creator of the universe, the world, everything in it. He's the creator of you and me. He is sovereign. He is alone at the top. There is nothing next to him. There is nothing above him. And there is nothing that happens in this world that he is not involved in. He is in control of everything. And he is working a plan and a purpose to a good end for his glory and for our good. We call that what the world calls fate, luck, chance. The believer in God calls the providence of God. And that is really good news for us. And there might not be any story in the Bible though it's all throughout Scripture, there might not be any story that exemplifies that more than the story of Joseph, which I know a lot of us will be familiar with. I just read us like the very tail end of what is a long number of chapters in the book of Genesis telling us the story of Joseph. Here's it in a nutshell. I'm going to go through it as fast as I can. Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the favorite. Jacob loved him more than the others. He kind of, we think he might have been kind of a little bit spoiled, a little bit extra. Uh, he has a dream 
that his brothers and his parents bow down to him, and he tells his brothers and his parents about that, and that doesn't really go over that well. And one day his brothers sell him into slavery. They sell him to slave traders who are headed to Egypt. They go back and tell his father, Jacob, that your favorite son has been killed by a wild animal. Joseph is taken to Egypt. He is thrown unjustly into prison. He's accused of sexual misconduct, which he did not do. He's forgotten in prison. Finally, he gets out because people know that he can interpret dreams. The cupbearer to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream. He doesn't understand it. The cupbearer is like, I knew a guy in prison who could interpret dreams. Joseph is brought out. He tells Pharaoh what it means. There's going to be seven years of really abundant crops, and there's going to be seven years of famine, Pharaoh. And if you store up the crops in the first half of that 14 years, you're going to do really well in the second half. And Pharaoh's like, you're my guy. Makes him second in command in all of Egypt. Exactly what Joseph predicted happens. And the whole world has to come to Egypt in those second seven years to get food because they stockpiled when things were good. That means that Joseph's brothers are sent by their father to come to Egypt to get food. Joseph recognizes them. There's a whole like we can't go into the details, but there's this whole reveal. They figure out who each other are. Joseph is like, go get my dad. They go get Jacob. They bring the whole family and they settle in Egypt. They're taken care of. They're saved because Joseph was sold into slavery to Egypt. And at the end of all of that, Jacob dies and the brothers are like, now, now he's going to get us because dad's gone and now, now we're in trouble. And I love, you know, that the verses that I just read, it's like, when, it's like when you go to your brother and you're like, dad said, let me play the Xbox. And dad did not say, let me play the Xbox. They're like, listen, dad said to leave us. Dad said, did not, not, don't do anything bad to us. And it's like, did dad really say that? And then Joseph, in the midst of all of that, gives us in verse 20, just one of the most clear declarations of the providence of God in all of scripture. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in the time we have left, I want to answer two questions. Two questions is, is it, uh, and these are them. I want to answer what one, what is the providence of God? Let's get a working definition and help us understand what that is. And then secondly, why does it matter? Like, okay, big deal. That sounds good theologically. What does it actually mean for me in my life? So number one, what is the providence of God? So providence is a Latin word, comes from a Latin word that means to take thought for, to look ahead, or to see before. It refers to foresight or making provisions beforehand, and it's come to be associated with God with the idea of divine provision being associated with the idea of providence. So providence is this idea of like being able to see ahead and make plans or provisions for it. Let me just give us a little biblical uh, journey on some of the biblical support for the providence of God. Just hang with me, five verses. There's many more. But Psalm 115, three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, six, same idea. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's from Paul when he's in prison. I was thrown in prison, and that has served to advance the gospel. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I would love to give you in this moment the Pastor Gary definition of providence, but let's go to someone who's a little bit more reliable 
someone who's actually a scholar. Uh, this is what Walter Elwell has to say about Providence. This, he's a biblical scholar, fellow Wheaton College grad, so um, must be a good guy. This is what he has to say about Providence. It's a little wordy, but hang with me. Providence, then, is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. This divine, sovereign, and benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in the scriptures. He continues, simply put, providence encompasses every aspect of the created order, from beginning to end, from heaven to earth, from animate to inanimate, from individuals to nations, from hours to ages, from weeds to wheat, from birth to death, from catastrophe to calm, everything is within the loving presence and involvement of the heavenly Father. In his wisdom, power, righteousness, and love, he is hastening slowly to work out his own eternal purposes for his own glory and our eternal good. What is the providence of God? Here's, here's the Pastor Gary definition. In every aspect of creation, in every circumstance and situation, in every seeming mistake, disappointment, and confusion, there is a good and loving God who is working for his eternal glory and our eternal good. That is a pole that we can grab onto when the air train of life is swaying back and forth. So the second thing I want to try and answer is this. Why does the providence of God matter? And here, I just want to circle back to something I said a little bit earlier, and that is Pastor Gary that sounds great, really cool, kind of feels like a little bit like I'm in school right now, just getting you warmed up if you're headed that way in the next few weeks. Like, that sounds good, but I don't always feel that in my life. Like the air train of life, you know what's, you know what's funny about the air train? Nobody's driving that sucker, <laughs> right? And doesn't that feel like life sometimes? Like who's driving this thing? Like swaying all over the place, stopping, starting back and forth, going places you don't want to go, trying to stay upright. And it's like the providence of God. That just sounds like something you talk about in seminary. And I don't really feel that. I didn't feel that when my mom died. I didn't feel like God was working towards my eternal good when I was diagnosed with cancer. It, it didn't feel like God was working for my good when my relationship, when my marriage broke down, when my boyfriend or my girlfriend left me. It doesn't feel like God's working for my eternal good when I lost my job or when someone else was promoted ahead of me or when God moved me to some place that I didn't want to go and I didn't want to live. It didn't feel like God was working for my good when my friends betrayed me or, or bailed on me. Like, so what? Like, how does that really affect me? And, and I, want to say, I want to say this. You know who else probably felt that way a little bit? Our guy Joseph. He was probably like, there were probably a few moments in his life. I know we went through it very quickly. Uh, if you want the details, go back into Genesis. There were probably a few moments in his life when he was sitting in prison in Egypt and he was like, how did I get here? And where is God in this? Where, how, how, who is God and where is he right now? Because it doesn't feel like he's working for my good or his glory in this moment. But, 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 but. We get to the end of his story, and he looks back on it, and what does he say to his brothers? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Here's what I love about that verse. That word meant, which shows up twice, brothers meant evil, God meant good. In Hebrew, it can also mean to weave. And I just think that is a beautiful picture of what Joseph, what God is communicating to us through Joseph. Here's what Joseph is saying. You guys were weaving evil into my life. And as you were doing that, God was superseding it and he was weaving in good that many people might be kept alive. And here's the thing about weaving. I have not done very much of it in my life. But in the midst of weaving, I don't know what you, what do you weave? A basket? A tapestry? Whatever. Can you tell what it is when you're halfway through the weaving? I mean, if it's a basket, maybe so. But, but you don't know until the end what, actual, what actually that product is going to be. And so there's this element of the providence of God where it doesn't feel really good, but we're going to need some hindsight to be able to understand what that providence of God has actually looked like in our lives. So if you're sitting in a season of life right now and you're like, not feeling this, Pastor Gary, that's okay. Because my guess is when Joseph was sitting in prison, he wasn't feeling it either. And yet when he got to the other side, he was able to look back and say, you were weaving in evil, but God was weaving in good. And so the truth we take from that, and this is, like, this is the take home from this message, God is so sovereign and so powerful that he can take evil in your life and turn it for good. Now we gotta be really careful here theologically. God does not have anything to do with evil. He is completely separate from it. Evil does not originate with God. He doesn't send it our way, but he is so powerful. He is so sovereign that he can even take the thing that is so, uh, that he can't even interact with, he can still take it and he can turn it around and he can weave good in the midst of the evil that is being done in our lives. I have debated whether to do this, even in this moment I'm debating. I wanna read you a story. Uh, I think I am a, mediocre storyteller, and the author of this book is an excellent storyteller. And so for half a moment, I thought about maybe I just summarize this, uh, but you would lose so much. So it's going to take a few minutes, but we're here. Kids are taken care of. Don't stress. And uh, I just want you to, I just, I just, I, it's so beautifully written. I just want you to hear it. So this is story time with PG. Uh, if I had a wingback chair, I'd settle in. And uh, if we had an electric fireplace, I'd fire that sucker up too. It's from a book called Good News from North Haven. It's written by a pastor. It's a fictional novel about a pastor of a small town church in Minnesota. I know Minnesota is practically Mars for us here in the Bay Area, but just suspend your disbelief and imagine what it would be like. Uh, we have weathered, also, sorry. You're like, Gary, if you don't get to the story, we're gonna be here for two hours. I also am thinking about this in this moment. I don't know if there's like copyright issues with this or what, I don't know. I hope I'm allowed to do this, but just we're going with it. So don't report me, don't report me. Uh, this, is, this is what it says. We have weathered another Easter. It always leaves me tired and full of hope. The same kind of tired and full of hope that comes after a long spring day in your vegetable garden. Hard work, no tomatoes yet, but good reason for hope. The Easter Sunday service was packed with the usual holiday contingent of visiting relatives. Mostly children and grandchildren come back from assorted suburbs of Minneapolis and Chicago to what some still call home. Then there were a number of locals who surface in church twice a year, drawn up from the murky depths of backsliding by some ancestral memory of poinsettias or lilies and perhaps faith. Annie and I took a few days off the week after Easter and went up to the cities. That's the Twin Cities. We stayed two nights at the Radisson, saw cats, and ate in a northern Italian restaurant we couldn't afford. 
Like most tourists, we did our very best not to look like tourists. You do this by walking very fast and being careful not to look up at the IDS tower or say excuse me to people you bump into. You also have to pretend that you're quite accustomed to paying $21.95 for veal marsala that doesn't include the salad, and that you're used to seeing people sleeping on the sidewalk and relieving themselves from a curb. But the hardest part of pretending not to be a tourist from the sticks is resisting the store temptation to say hi to people you really don't know in those careless words revealing the painful truth that you come from somewhere small and in two days you'll be sent back to where you belong. We had the same waiter three times at the restaurant at the Radisson, twice for breakfast and once for lunch. He was sternly efficient and said eggs sardou as if maybe he could speak French, but his name tag said he was Andrew. The second time he waited on us, it was all we could do to resist the habit of four years in a small town and say, well, Andy, good morning, good morning, how about this? How are you today? Doesn't seem quite so busy as yesterday, does it? Instead, I offered a crisp good morning and asked for two coffees. No way he could guess from that we were anything but a couple of sophisticates catching a bite before heading for our offices. We drove home Thursday afternoon. It had been ages since either of us had been anywhere more exotic than Mankato. Four years had passed since I took the call to go to North Haven. In our minds, it had always been a first solo pastorate, a place to get a start on a mercurial career in the ministry, a place to pass through. Pastors of Second Presbyterian have seldom stayed longer than three or four years. So it was strange to feel as we have these last months that ours was one roadshow that might stay in town for a while. Driving home on Highway 169 that afternoon, we found a common intuition becoming words. There was a rightness about us in that little town. Any comfortable, the kids barely remembering anything else, and my work at church accepted, sometimes indulged, but always graciously received. So we said what had been hanging in our thoughts. Let's go home and think of it as home and make it home for a while. For the first time in my four years in North Haven, I felt, I felt I understood what it meant to be called a pastor someplace. We stopped and picked up the kids at the sitters and went home to find a note tucked in the screen door. It was from Maureen, our eight-hour-a-week volunteer church secretary. It read, Minnie McDowell is pretty sick, thinks she's dying again. Better get over there when you get back. Minnie is 86 and married to Angus. For the last 10 years, she has been very organized about dying. She plans to do it just so because she's always done everything just so. This means she'll do it at home, in bed, with a fresh nightgown on and the pastor present. There have been two false alarms in the last three years. As the doctor explained to me, the only problem with Minnie's plans is that she is not sick. So I climbed right back in the car and headed over to the McDowell's. Angus greeted me at the door with a grave look, but then Angus has had a grave look since he was 22, or so they tell me. Thanks for coming, David. He put his hand on my back just below my neck and gently shepherded me toward the staircase of their old Victorian house. Minnie was upstairs in bed in a lacy nightgown, her hair newly done, the bed covers folded just above her waist. She languidly raised her arm for me to take her hand, smiled theatrically, and said, I'm so glad you made it back in time, Pastor. Angus pushed a chair at me from the rear. I sat down, let a moment pass, and asked Minnie if she were comfortable. She nodded slowly and said that the doctor had just left but had been no help. I was getting up nerve to inquire about what the doctor had said when Minnie, perhaps sensing what I was thinking, said, Ask me the question, Pastor. The question I had come to know on my last two visits to Minnie's deathbed was an essential part of her very precise plans for the day. It was a question that she had been raised to believe was absolutely necessary for a tasteful death. The pastor was to ask, are you prepared to die? And the die was to answer, yes, Pastor, I am. Then the pastor read the 23rd Psalm and prayed briefly, concluding with the Lord's Prayer. Then the die died. That was how it was properly done. We had done it twice before, all except for the last part. I looked helplessly over my shoulder at Angus, who knit his brow and nodded imperceptibly, which I took to mean, do your job, kid. So I smiled pastorally at Minnie and said, are you prepared to die? I almost slid off my chair when she said, no. 
Her lower lip started to quiver and she looked away from me at the wall. I squeezed her hand as Angus patted me on the back and said, Minnie's got something she's got to get off her chest. At which Minnie choked out the words, no, Angus, you tell him. David, Angus began, you'll remember that I was the chairman of the pulpit nominating committee that called you to be our pastor four years ago. I remembered. It had been a committee of only three. They had been through the pastor search process so often as to wink at some of the rules and not take the whole matter with the customary gravity. But as Angus began the tale, he was grave, even for Angus. We received 28 dossiers from ministers. We read them all and narrowed the choice down to two, you and the Reverend Mr. Hartwick Benson of Indianapolis. We invited both you and Mr. Benson to visit North Haven. We listened to the both of you preach up in Wilmar. It came back to me as though it were yesterday. A hot day in June, a brand new pulpit robe, fresh from Bentley and Simon, my champion fits all sermon, my voice cracking during what was meant to be a thunderous conclusion. After it was over, I made my peace with the prospect of settling for a position even less desirable than North Haven, Minnesota. What elation, what affirmation when a simple handwritten note came four days later, postmarked N. Haven Min. There was no heading, only a date, and then, dear sir, we are most pleased to inform you. David, Angus went on as his eyes shifted from me to his wife. Minnie was secretary to our committee. She typed up all the letters. She typed up one to Reverend Benson and one to you. Somehow they got into the wrong envelopes. <laughs> Mr. Benson got your letter and you got Mr. Benson's letter. At this, Minnie started dabbing her eyes with her hanky and then wrapping it tightly around her index finger in a sort of penitential self-mortification. We never realized the mistake until you called on the phone to say, yes, you'd come. You were so eager, we just decided, well, what the heck, and let it go. <laughs> a few weeks later, I heard Mr. Hartwick Benson got a call to a church in Hawaii. Angus put his hand on my shoulder and gave a squeeze, a gush of empathy for Angus. Minnie was slowly shaking her head. She said, I just couldn't die with such a thing on my conscience. But all of a sudden, it wasn't Minnie who was dying. It was me. Noting my stunned silence, she pushed herself up to a sitting position, ordered Angus to make hot tea, and resolved to postpone her death. They served me tea with shortbread, and Angus commented how amazingly helpful my visit was to the state of Minnie's health. Looking sideways at her, he said to me, a person always feels better when they get something off their chest. Their souls may have been unburdened, but mine was loaded. I got in the car and headed home, wherever that was. This near-deathbed revelation derailed the sense of rightness about being in North Haven that Annie and I had felt just a few hours ago. That wave of acceptance that had washed over us as we drove home was receding to the sea. My call was nothing but Minnie mixing up two letters. I drove north on Main toward the bridge and pulled over to the side of the road on the northeast edge of town. The slow that lies alongside the road is an elbow-shaped marsh that used to be a bend in the river until the river changed course some 80 years ago. North Haven, built on the river, suddenly found itself a half mile away, astride a languid stretch of shallow water and marshland that went nowhere. Stranded water, the river not where it was supposed to be, I said to myself. It was very quiet. I heard a blue heron call and then saw it take to wing. There are no herons on the river itself. The water moves too fast and there are too many boats. There was a rightness about this marsh that should have been the river. The heron, the cattails, the evening breeze just troubling the shallow water. It wasn't supposed to be this way, but it was. A memory came to me from my seminary days. A strident old Calvinist professor of theology was lecturing on the will of God. He had argued for a high view of providence. 
To make the point perfectly clear, he ambled over to the classroom window and said, do you see that man leaning on that lamppost by the bus stop down there? I could see him then, and I can see him in my mind's eye now. He was wearing a business suit and a hat and was fumbling in his pocket for something. After we all had a look, the professor paused dramatically and said slowly, from the very beginning of time, God has intended that man to be standing there at this very moment. We didn't like the idea. It rankled all our notions of free will and human independence. I remember some pundit in the class asking, but what if he just got off at the wrong bus stop? The professor raised his eyebrows and replied, the wrong bus stop from whose point of view? I know that so much has come upon me in life I did not search out and choose, but rather found by chance and accepted as grace. The will of God is an infinitely intricate weaving of incidents and accidents, plans and providence. Sometimes it works through us, sometimes in spite of us, but in all things it can work for good. The rightness Annie and I had felt about North Haven that afternoon was not diminished by a decision made four years ago to call Hartwick Benson as pastor. It was probably a good choice. He was older and more experienced than I. This is home because many and a few hundred other people trust me to hold their hands should they die. It is home because Angus and many dared to tell me the truth. It is home because old ladies reach out to touch our children as they pass by in church as if they were their own. It is home because the checker in the market calls me by my name. It is home because I don't want to go anywhere else. What I know now is that how this came to be home is a stranger story than I had thought. But the story usually is stranger than we first thought. I drove home to tell Annie that Minnie McDowell had lived to die another day and that I thought I knew where home was. Your life is not an accident. Your life is not a product of whim or luck or fate or chance. Your life is the product of a good, sovereign, and all-powerful God who is in control of every aspect of creation and life. And in every instance, he is weaving a story that is for his eternal glory and for your eternal good. Some of you might be here saying, PG, I got stuff in my past. I got, I got evil in my past. I got evil that I have done. I got evil that has been done to me. I've got mistakes in my past. And I would just say to you, number one, welcome to the club. And number two, mistakes from whose perspective? God is not the source of any evil. And we go through some, I don't know if I should say this as a pastor, we go through some crap in life. There's just no other... If you need to email me about that, you can. And in the midst of the crap, God is weaving good. And sometimes we're not going to see that until we get out on the other side. That is the providence of God. I want to invite the, the worship team up as I close this out. And for anyone who's here and, and you are like, I just can't get on board with that, I, I my experience does not allow me to get there. I have seen too much evil. I have experienced too much evil. I have done too much evil. Can I just remind us that Joseph is not the only one in Scripture, not the only place in Scripture, where God took an egregious evil and used it for good. Hear what uh, Peter says to the crowd in Acts 2, verse 23. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why was Jesus killed on the cross? Was it man's sin or God's plan? 
It was both. What man was weaving for evil, God was weaving for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The perfect, innocent, spotless Lamb of God was unjustly murdered with a common criminal's death. But what man was weaving for evil, what we were weaving for evil, God was weaving for good. Because of the blood shed by Jesus on the cross, all who put their hope and trust in him will be saved. Man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And if God could do that for Jesus, he can do it for you. The providence of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in the midst of the chaos of this life, of the hurking and the jerking and the swaying and the starting and the stopping, that you give us some solid things to hold on to. We thank you that we uh, are not left to our own devices as we journey through this life, that we are not left uh, like, like ships on, a, on the sea without a rudder or a sail, simply tossed to and fro by fate or luck or chance or fortune, fortune or whatever the world would call it. But we are being guided every single moment by the all-sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe for whom nothing is impossible. And that in every moment of our lives, the highs and the lows, the goods and the bads, the wins and the losses, you are weaving together our eternal good and your eternal glory. May that be real to us today, God. May we lean into that today. Whatever it is that you are bringing us through in our life and in the season of transition for the life of our church. May we not just talk about and believe in our heads, but may we in, have in our hearts the providence of God. Your perspective is different than ours. May we not forget it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was a word. Praise God. I received that. There are no accidents. Come on and stand with us, church. Hallelujah. We're going to sing. We're going to close out today remembering that living heart. Hallelujah.
So glad you're able to join with us tonight. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Jesus with your life, myself, one of the elders, one of our ministry leaders would love to talk to you about that. Uh, if you think anything that you need prayer for, uh, you can reach out to us at prayer at alcf.net. Uh, we have a prayer team, and it is their great joy to lift up the prayers of the people in our body. Uh, we'll see you back here next week, and then one more week after that. Uh, receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.